and welcome once again to a novel evening. As always, I'm Danny. You can find me over on Instagram as at a novel evening podcast. Same over on TikTok. Hello, <laughs> welcome. Um, I am so excited to chat all about tonight's book with tonight's author. I mean, some of you may know, some of you probably don't know, many of you probably don't know. I am a huge fan of tattoos. I have many. I am, you might say, an avid collector. Um, but also I'm a big fan of, you know, spiritualism, seances, communing with the dead. I love a good gothic novel. Give me all of that creepiness. And if you combine that with old school tattoos, oh my God, you have a book for me. Oh, I am so, so excited to chat about this novel, The Knowing by Emma Hines. Oh my word. Like one of the things I find most fascinating about tattoos is the history as well and what a history it has. And I cannot wait to dive in with Emma all about the inspiration for this novel, the research she did for this. Oh, I'm, I'm just so excited. Uh, and I also cannot wait to see what she's going to bring to her novel evening. So let's go. So a massive hello to Emma. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I am good. I'm a little bit jet lagged. I have been in Seattle for the last three days and uh, yeah, I'm a little bit jet lagged, but I'm good. I'm excited to be here. It's the middle of the day in Seattle. So it's a, a novel lunchtime for me <laughs> rather than novel evening. What's <laughs> you to Seattle? What are you doing out there? Uh, family, Christmas, all of that. So oh, yeah. So you having Christmas in Seattle? Uh, we're here for two weeks, so Ooh. we'll be in the UK to do Christmas with our, with our other folks, and we're just doing some Christmas with our Seattle folks now. So we've done some, some tree decorating, which is great because American homes are massive, so you yep. can have a tree like the size of a, a shopping centre tree, which is wonderful. Yeah. But, yeah. Oh. I, and also, I feel like I lived in Canada for a while, and I know they're two, two different countries, but I feel like that side of the world just know how to do Christmas. They have to do all of it. Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas. They do it so much better, bigger. Yeah, it is. It's big and, and bright and beautiful and lots of lights. And every house looks like the Home Alone house. And it's very Nancy Myers over here right now. It's great. We went to a, a Christmas cookie exchange party which is something Americans love to do, apparently. Uh, and I had to, somebody said, so do they do they have this in the UK? And I was like, no, we have mince pies. Um, they are they are great, but I don't think you're going to like them. I'm not a mince pie fan. I'm one of those heathens that's like, mm, mince pie. I'd rather do the cookie exchange. I mean, the cookie exchange was glorious. It was Did glorious. you all have to take something so everyone had to bake different cookies yeah. and you go and... Yes, yes. And then all the cookies are laid out on a beautiful table, Christmas buffet style. And everybody's, they're, they're laid out on a long sheet of brown paper and everybody's written a little note about what their cookie is next to it. And so then you go around with a little a little plate and you take all the cookies that you want and there's coffee and there's eggnog and it's like, there's Christmas music and you're in an American Christmas rom-com. It's wonderful. Oh, I'm, I'm like sick with jealousy. I'm like... <laughs> I need this in my life, but I can't bake. So there's no point in me even, I would bring shop-bought cookies to this. I'm not going to lie to you. Because that's definitely not allowed. It's, no. It's not allowed. I can all bake. I don't know what this is. I feel like I've yet to meet an American who's like, yeah, I can't bake. I'm like, you just, you know what you're doing. And they also, they use proper stuff for baking. It's like, yeah. 
They just yeah. do it better. And you've got all the Christmas build up and the excitement of Christmas, but then comes the new year, which is very <laughs> exciting for you because you're kicking off the new year with a book. Yes, my debut novel, The Knowing, is released on the 18th of January. I got that right. I'm very impressed with myself. Yeah. How does it, has that sunk in yet? Like, is it kind of real? Oh, it's well sunk in. It's, um, I think because of the way that publishing works, everything happens a very long time in advance. Yeah. So, um, yeah, by the time you get to uh, release and get actually getting, I'm I'm kind of kicking it out the door. You know, I'm yeah. I'm like get out there, go go. I never want to see you again. Um, but yeah, it's a uh, it's really great. It's really nice to be able to share it with with people and be talking about it uh, as a complete thing um, because it feels often like you're in the editing stage for an eternity. Um, so it's nice to be out the other side. Oh, now I'm going to just, I'm going to force you to go right back into talking about it all <laughs> over, because the first thing we need to tell us is, is what's your book about? Tell us about The Knowing. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. I definitely will. So um, The Knowing is a story of a queer tattooed mystic uh, living in New York and Manchester um, in the 1800s, uh, in the Victorian era, and she can hear and see ghosts. And it's uh, it's full of all my favourite things, which are queer love and gothic themes and haunted spaces and weaponizing your trauma, uh, basically. And um, Flora, uh, her name is Flora. She starts in the slums of New York and then she has uh, meets uh, a woman called Minnie, who is a disabled circus performer who sort of elevates her in society. Uh, but with that, there comes lots of darkness and intrigue and terrible, terrible men who have terrible, terrible intentions. Um, and it's about how she navigates her way uh, through that space and away from people who are dangerous uh, towards some kind of happiness. Hopefully. <laughs> oh, we, we shall find out. I mean, yeah. I have to ask where this idea came from. Mm, yeah. Um, it sounds really corny to be like, it came to me in a dream. Um, it didn't completely, but I uh, I just moved to Manchester. And um, for those of you who don't know, Manchester is full of canals. Um, and I love, I love the canals of Manchester. And I kept dreaming about them. And I kept dreaming about a particular scene in the book that involves a canal, which I cannot tell on the podcast because that would be a spoiler, I think. Uh it depends how we feel about spoilers. If this is a spoiler podcast or a let's not spoil because the books the book isn't out yet. Let's let people figure this out. They need to find <laughs> out for themselves. I mean, make people work for this. Buy the book. Yeah, but basically, I kept dreaming about this particular moment uh, that then became, uh, and I started writing from that particular moment as my starting point. Uh, which is interesting because chronologically speaking, the scene actually comes close to the end of the book. So. Mm. Um, yeah, it's just sort of the way it worked out um and everything sort of built up from there i i knew that the 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 scene that i was dreaming involved uh, a circus performer a freak show performer and that just sent me into uh, research into victorian freak shows and victorian sideshows and pt barnum and um and i came across the um a photograph of maud wagner who yeah. uh, was one of the first female tattoo artists in New York. Uh, and it was a beautiful photo, a black and white of her um, 
just wearing like a, a corset uh, and then showing her tattoos that she has all across her chest and down her arms. And they're amazing. And I looked at her and I was like, that's that's my person. That's uh, that's what my main character looks like. And everything sort of took took flight from there. But for me, it always everything always comes from research first. Uh, I have to start with what really happened and what the world was really like. And then uh, fiction kind of unravels out of it. Yeah. And you've obviously got Manchester as a setting, which you're obviously very familiar with. Were you as familiar with New York? Is that somewhere you've been? Uh, yes, I've been. I've been. Um, I have been, but I wasn't as familiar with it at all. Um, and for me, the draw of New York and the reason for New York was because of how important New York was for freak show and sideshow culture right. um, and because of P.T. Barnum's influence. And it was a, a real epicenter of that kind of culture uh, mm. that came across to London. Um, and yeah, I wanted to have a character who was in different versions of that world. So in New York, it was uh, could be very high glamour. Um, it could involve a lot of money. Um, whereas in places in the UK, it was obvious, often a lot less glamorous. Um, less money less as is often the way <laughs> as is often the way yeah and I just wanted to um to have both of those worlds and uh I kind of I just fell in love with uh five points which is a historical part of New York uh which was a huge um slum area but also an area where so many people so many different cultures lived and um where it's where the film gangs of New York is set as well um, and I just, I learned so much about that world and ma it made it so real for my character, uh, that, yeah, I kind of fell, in, I fell in love with it through that, but I would love to go back to New York with all the research knowledge I now have in a way. So, because when I went, I didn't know everything that I know now. Um, so I'd love to go back and kind of walk Flora's, uh, walk steps basically yeah. that she because I know it now I know exactly where to go um so yeah uh I'd love to do that one day that's fantastic and I'm a I'm a huge fan of tattoos I have many of them myself and something that really does fascinate me is the the history of tattooing mm. especially with women and when I saw Maud's name very familiar with Maud and you know husband and that whole story and was there anything that you learn in the process of learning about you know, tattoo artistry that surprised you or anything that kind of you didn't know? Uh, I think the thing that was surprising was the amount of uh, upper class women, particularly in the New York scene, who were getting tattoos. Oh. Uh, but they were just getting them in different ways. So uh, Flora works in a, a tattoo shop called The Painted Man, which is run by uh, her lover slash captor, I, what we would call a Victorian toxic boyfriend, um, Jordan Whittaker. And when we think of historical tattoos, I think we think very much of that sort of scene, which is they do a lot of gang, gang tattoos. They do a lot of tattoos for the Navy, for people who are sailing and travelers. Um, and they do mainly majority men. Yeah. But in, in uh, outside of the working class and in, outside of the sum classes in New York, the, the people who were being tattooed in the upper classes were not men. They were majority women. 
and they were doing it uh, sort of like uh, like a tattoo party, right? So oh, they would yeah they would get together and they'd close the door and they'd um you know they send send all the servants away. They'd they somebody would pay for a, a tattoo artist to come up from downtown, um, and they would all you know sit around get little dainty tattoos hidden away on their like. Uh, their ankles or somewhere that nobody but their their husband or their other women folk are going to see um so I thought that was really interesting uh which is part of the reason why at the beginning of the book when uh Minnie gets a tattoo she gets it on her thigh it's like a very uh secretive hidden yeah. place that finer ladies would sort of want for tattoos so that was my favorite fact that I learned about oh, history it's fascinating I didn't know that that's incredible and that's so funny, the idea of these upper class ladies, there's something so rebellious about it that I love. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. fantastic. And um, also, when did you, did you always know there was going to be this kind of spiritualism, this kind of speaking to the, the dead? Did you always know that was going to factor into it? Did that come right at the beginning or was that kind of introduced a bit later on? Uh, I think it was always, I always knew um, that I wanted it to be, have a spiritualist connection because it's such an interesting part of Victorian yeah. life. Um, something that I love about the Victorians that we don't really talk about is how obsessed they were with death and the afterlife and um, and not in a prissy way, in a kind of uh, almost sensual and raw way. They were very interested in making those connections uh, to the point that they would sort of um, have mystics you know come into their homes and perform madness and or even you know display madness if unfortunately they were mentally ill and they were just being used for those kind of yeah. things um and I found that fascinating and I had read um Alias Grace by Margaret yes. Atwood um and a few other books that uh really focused on that kind of mystic experience like an almond for a parrot which I can't remember who it's written by apologies um and, I should also I'm like mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew I wanted to include that world um and I have a habit of any kind of book that I write eventually something magical shows up like right. that, that's law. um I think it's just part of my my background and how I view the world um I've always got a very spiritual lens on it so mm. yeah I always knew it was coming and um and it was easy to write in Flora uh is a character who has taken a lot in her life and her rebellion comes from this kind of secret power inside of her that she doesn't really know how to wield. Um, and that's a very compelling narrative for me. It's something that I write a lot, I think. And I think it works so well in the setting. Like you're saying, you know, the Victorians were, I have a real thing about kind of the the death photographs that they would take. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm fascinated by this idea of, taking photos of people after they've passed and I know often you know if people couldn't afford photographs or someone was living and but I think there's something almost beautiful about the connection they had with death and they lived with it so closely in a way I, I don't think we do anymore everything's very sanitized it happens behind closed doors you know someone yeah. dies they get taken away you don't you don't have to see them they're prepared nicely again still don't have to see them if you don't want to but then death was part of the day-to-day -day, wasn't it you I think especially, especially where Flora was is growing up, which is 
five points, which is one of, historically, there are a couple of slums that really had influences on big writers. So Dickens went to New York and went to five points and called it one of the worst slums in the world. And that informed some of his writing about the the working class conditions. Um, And similarly, the slum that I write about in uh, the second half of the book in Manchester, uh, uh, Angel Meadows had a similar impact on Friedrich Engels when he wrote uh, The Conditions of Working Class in England. He was writing about these slums. So um, in those places, yeah, death was just everywhere. And um, I think people were very aware of it. Also, drug addiction was very prominent, obviously gang violence. Yeah. Um, but also people were just living their lives as well. There was a real combination of people running businesses, living, raising children, having families. Um, and in both cases of both slums, it ended up that the cities they that had made them ended up raising them, you know, uh, yeah. in towards the, the beginning of the 1900s, both Angel Meadows and and Five Points were completely raised to make kind of picturesque garden parks or or you know make yeah commercial spaces so um yeah it's very interesting to think about uh how the cities that we see today um like london new york and and manchester are kind of built on the bones of these these places where people lived and and died and had their whole lives um so yeah lots of death (laughs) and we've mentioned it briefly with lots of death (laughs) we've mentioned it briefly but my my only reference to Five Points is Gangs of New York, um, mm. which admit is a film I think I have probably watched the beginning of many times, and then I've probably fallen asleep about halfway and had to mm. restart. Same with Saving Private Ryan. I don't know if he gets saved. I have no idea because there's all those films I always watch at the beginning of it, and somewhere along the way, I either have to turn it off or I fall asleep. But I have finished Gangs of New York. I have mm. I've watched that, and obviously the Dead Rabbits feature very prominently in that film, and they're also within your book, and you've got again real life characters like Maud and you know you feature P.T. Barnum who's now obviously very well known because of the great mm. was there yeah. ever kind of a trepidation for you that you were tackling these characters that all have such you know if you picture the dead rabbits you immediately get that scene with Liam Neeson and you get that side of it you're going to picture P.T. Barnum and you're picturing Hugh Jackman was there ever kind of a, a bit of a trepidation in tackling those characters featuring them uh I don't think so. I think because uh, the characters that are real characters who feature, uh, like P.T. Barnum is only sort of referenced. Um, I never put him on the page. And the characters who are real are people who, for the most part, other people don't know about. So I kind of felt good about bringing them to people. So, for instance, uh, there's a photographer in the book called Mr. Eisenman, who um, was a real uh, freak show and sideshow as photographer um and he did like all of the famous uh victorian photography for pt barnum that we know today like uh tom thumb and lots of other uh performers right. and um another one is kate kate woods is uh, a madam who appears in the book and kate woods was a real madam who ran the real hotel the woods in midtown during the victorian era which was a right. very brothel um 
So I I feel good about that because I feel like I'm bringing these people back to life yeah. and getting to show them to people and say, oh, these people were really cool and, and interesting. And they were, they had this whole life and this whole world and it just makes it feel more enlivened to me. Um, I was annoyed when The Greatest Showman came out, I will admit. Uh, I was mainly annoyed because uh, P.T. Barnum was, not a nice man um and treated all of his performers badly um mm-hmm. in the sense that very few of them got paid well or or rightly for 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 the kind of for for their services or what they were doing um he's a very manipulative person uh so i was everybody was saying oh your book it must be like the greatest show and i was like no <laughs> no absolutely not yeah so I was just bringing everybody down everybody's like oh this is the greatest show and I'm like he was terrible he was a terrible man (laughs) so I do think that's interesting how you know Hollywood takes these stories and obviously it's much more palatable to have P.T. Barnum as this kind of man who learns from the error of his ways he doesn't do anything too horrific within the within the film itself other than to you know try and aim too high and realize he should have kind of been more humble is kind of the worst thing he does in that film yeah I think um ultimately people there are people who will say well yeah he was a terrible man but he also gave people livelihoods and I think that's true but um it's also kind of depressing when you think about the only option for livelihoods is to be kind of financially manipulated um which is why I I, but I was fascinated by him. And I think there is a little bit of P.T. Barnum in my character, Minnie, because she is mm. a disabled performer who runs a show independently uh, featuring all female uh, performers and sideshow performers. And I I liked the the conflict in her of, of being the thing that people have always been looking at and wanting to be in control. Uh, but also, you know, she is, uh, she can be manipulative and um, she can be cruel. And I think, I think there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of Barnum in her in a way uh, of seeing the opportunity. From what I've read about kind of the circus industry at the time and sideshows, and it was very dog eat dog though. You had to be tough because they were awful to each other as well, right? Yeah, they were, they were awful to each other. Um and often the thing was that a lot of the performers who did really well were performers who often had extensive medical needs and needed people who were going to support them. Uh, and that often left them open to vulnerable, like vulnerable to financial manipulation and being taken advantage of. And um, yeah, if it, like in the UK, obviously it was Joseph Merrick, um, who was yes, also yeah. and had so was so popular wildly popular and had so many people who were constantly trying to take advantage of his popularity but also was uh very unwell you know physically unwell um so i think that is a it's something that's very interesting about about that world um and i wanted minnie to be a character who has her own disabilities but has decided she is going to sell herself rather than have somebody else sell her Uh, and I like I liked the the implications of that choice for her throughout her life basically 
And lastly, you've mentioned, obviously, there's a queer love story in the centre of this. Mm. And I think, again, that's an interesting time period to explore this in, right? Because the Victorians still had quite a puritanical look, right, on kind of homosexuality and queerness at the time. I think what always happens is we look back and we think it must have been terrible to be gay back then. And we're right. Um, But as always, queer people have always existed and will always continue to exist. And we we always find ways to exist and to be happy. And um, I think somebody who does this really well in fiction is Sarah Waters. Like she's an amazing historical fiction writer who features queer love stories. And um, yeah, I for me, that was such an important part of my journey to be becoming a writer is realizing that I wanted to excavate queer stories and give queer voices back in ways that we um we haven't always heard them uh so yeah I think it's um yeah the Victorian era is full of people uh being a little bit emotionally repressed but the variety of people was so broad you know and queer people lived queer people existed and um there were also you know famous queer people and even when you go a little bit further like forward in history if you look at like Anne Lister um Mm -hmm. and how amazing she was and and the model that she provides of like an everyday queer life because I think sometimes what when you look at somebody like Anne Lister uh you might assume that she was strong and fierce and a lesbian but she was alone and that's just not true you know she had Mm. many partners throughout her life she uh, she was almost married once to somebody who broke her heart and then did marry uh, obviously within what they, yeah. they obviously legally marry just for clarification for listeners there were for listeners there wasn't a, a, a bout of lesbian marriages in the Victorian era uh, but yeah it's um it's interesting I think to remember that you know people were living their lives and making it work and being happy together and trying to find happiness together I've always found the Victorian age as well to be a really interesting kind of a paradox because while she had kind of the straight laced Victorians, we all picture, you know, not showing your ankles off and not, you know, discussing sex or discussing. And yet when you look at things like Victorian pornography, there's a lot of queer imagery out there. There was a lot of, and again, you know, when you look at things like sideshows and you look mm-hmm. at things like tattoos, I feel like there was a darker side to the Victorian age. And I'm not saying, you know, that the queer imagery was was in that, but maybe more of a curious side to the Victorians that we perhaps don't always give them credit for. Yeah, I think it's interesting always to think about what will people say about how we lived, yeah. you know, in a hundred years. What will be the thing that they say about us? Um, and we can we can make broad generalizations about the Victorians, but um we know that that they obviously did have sex that they were that pornography was a massive industry for them huge yeah yeah that they they like burlesque was a big thing sideshows were a big thing sexual entertainment was everywhere um and yeah they did have a sort of a primness maybe in some of their upper coding but I think a lot of that comes from the monarchy coming Mm. down rather than coming from the bottom up and something that I like to do in my writing is look towards the the lower levels of society 
in a sense, because I think that really gives you a measure of, of how people were and how they lived and what they were like and what their lives were like. And then it you you can see it branching upwards rather than going from like the top, yeah. the top down. Because if you start with Queen Victoria, then you're going to have one kind of... <laughs> she was not known for being fun. That was not her. She was not. But she had a lot of children who loved fun and, you know... Um, she was also really into spirit, spiritualism. Yeah. She had a, a mystic who she she used to talk to her dead husband via. Yeah. You know. So it's, um, I think the thing about the Victorians is that, that maybe that they were prim and uh, and dour maybe, but they were not puritanical um, yeah. in the way that people think they were. I think if if you want puritans then look to the puritans it's the, the puritans. americans yeah i saw an amazing i think it was an article but it was of it was i think it was entitled like victorian photographs of people having fun because when you picture victorian photographs it's always the very serious because you know you don't you kind of get one shot but there were some amazing photos of victorian families playing around or pulling you know ridiculous poses or I think there was two gentlemen who'd like stripped to their socks and were having their pictures taken with ridiculous hats on and I thought again that's a side you just don't get to read about or hear about is the fun they were having fun yeah yeah exactly and house and the way that we remember is based on what we have to remember and yes. This, the echelons of society that are so most easily lost in the historical uh, kind of uh, river are the lower and working classes yeah. because they can't afford to make draw a portrait. They can't afford to have a portrait done. They can't afford to have photographs taken. Uh, nobody is writing a book about them, um, you know, and that's why historically speaking, somebody like Dickens is such a valuable writer. Yeah he writes about um real working class people and their their lives and and that's so important because those are the lives that we don't have necessarily all the data and documentation for so when you think about victorians you obviously think of somebody who's a little bit more upper class and buttoned up because those are the photographs that have survived yeah it's the way that history works and before we dive in to your novel evening, my last question, if you can answer it, is what comes next for you? you know, your book's on the horizon, but as you say, it takes a while to get there. So are you currently writing? Is there something in the works? Yeah, I am really busy. I am really busy. I am I am under contract. Um, okay. so I am I am on I am on it. I am on it. <laughs> is uh, yeah, I am I am under the whip and the next couple of years look look busy for me. Um yeah, so I've got some exciting stuff coming up uh, that I can't really talk about yet. Um, but um, yeah, I will between yeah twenty twenty four to twenty twenty six look very busy for me in terms of Amazing. having books out in the world. So I cool. and I guess the second book is a very different beast as well because your first one, you know, you kind of just write for you, right? You never know if it's going to get out there, and then the next one is a very different process, right? It is, it is such a different process. Uh, the biggest one being time. So the knowing took about 10 years to write because I was working full time. And like so many other debut writers who who do this, you know, you, you work full time and you write on the weekends or you write yeah. at the end of the day and you go for weeks without writing and then you have to get back into it and it's exhausting. Um, so it took me about 10 years to kind of uh, 
maybe not to write, but it was 10 years from when I started writing to when it will be published. Um, So, and then uh, second book, you you sign a contract and um, you were expected to deliver the book in, in 12 months or 14 months. So it's a completely, completely different beast. Um, But on the other hand, I write full time now. So my every day is, um, which is everything I ever wanted. So I'm very lucky. Incredible. Now look, we're going to dive in to your novel evening. So I'm excited, mm-hmm. no pressure. So oh, we, always, <laughs> we always kick things off, firstly, by asking where we're going to go. All right. I've got my notebook because I, I had like, this was almost decided by committee. I basically had people over and was like, <laughs> right, okay, I need help organizing my ideas with what I'm doing. So I had a few options. Okay. Uh, but I did, I did come down on one. Uh, and it's been a pre-approved, so this is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's a a real place that has been fictionalized by many, many people, uh, which is John Dee's Library at Mortlake, Ooh. Um, which is now lost to history uh, because, unfortunately, uh, in the 1600s there was. A, or at the end of the 1500s, there was a fire at Mortlake and John Dee uh, lost huge swathes of his library. Uh, but at the it was reported to be one of the best libraries in Europe. Uh, and he was, John Dee, for those who don't know, was a, uh, Dr. John Dee was a kind of uh, an all round Elizabethan sorcerer. <laughs> um, you know, he was, he was, uh, the guy who, you know, he was really into cartography. The way that we use maps today is was built on stuff that he did. Um, and, you know, he was really into mathematics. Uh, but on top of that, those are the kind of things that as a modern person, we're like, oh, rational, inventory things. Uh, but then he also was really into speaking to angels and um, and star signs. And he 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 drew the star side the star charts for henry the 8th and elizabeth the 1st and uh edward as well in the middle wow. so you know he had a good library and i would like to see it <laughs> okay well we love a library first and foremost you can't go wrong with a good library so this is an excellent setting so who are you going to bring to john Dee's okay. library so I had to think about this in terms of, uh, so I don't really like people. Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I like I like some people, yeah. uh, but what I had to think about was who do I want to bring with me to the library? Who is going to enjoy the library, look around the library and not talk to me very much? Um, so this was my my plan was like the perfect kind of combination of real people and fictional people yep. who will enjoy the library uh, and also who I can just watch interact with each other whilst I'm happily hiding behind a, a long lost manuscript from who knows when and just watch them kind of interact with each other uh, in a hilarious ways. Okay. So- Okay, yeah. I, you've thought this through and I appreciate the work that's gone into this. And also your honesty, because I feel you. I'm, I like people that I like. 
Yeah, exactly. This is a novel evening for introverts, basically. Excellent. Then, you know, there needs to be novel evenings for those as well. They can't all just be raucous, outrageous. Yeah, I have I have no interest in that, unfortunately. The trouble is, if I build a party, then the first thing will happen is everyone will arrive and then I'll just hide in the kitchen. So yeah. it needs to be an event that I want to attend. You want to be there? Absolutely. Okay, so who's guest number one? Uh, this was very easy, actually, um, because uh, I miss her terribly and I never got to meet her and, yeah... I miss her. I miss her every day. And I have her her quotes stuck above my desk. So she's kind of with me when I write. But um, yeah, it would be Hilary Mantel. I knew. I knew that was coming. I knew it. Absolutely. I mean, Wolf Hall. Gosh, I took Wolf Hall on my honeymoon. So I'd have been 19 when I decided to take Wolf Hall because that's what you do. I mean, yeah. What else, what else would you take to read by the pool? But huge time. I remember just being blown up. The way she writes is just incredible yeah yeah definitely and she's uh probably like my biggest my biggest literary influence and um yeah the person who in a weird way I most wanted to read I read the knowing um but yeah it's uh as my as my partner always says uh she's she's still here because all of her books are still here so it's a wonderful way of thinking and if you believe in you know believe in afterlife I don't think there's anyone else who would she'd have met John D. That's done. That's happened. Cromwell, that's happened. Yeah, exactly. And I think she would, she would absolutely love to get her hands on his library. So um, yes. yeah, I think me and Hilary Mantel are going to be there. Uh, that's uh, some, a real person. And in other real people, uh, I also want to invite Christopher Marlowe because I think he's just got so many secrets. Yes. Um, he's got some things, isn't he? got some things he's got some things and also repping Hillary could get it out of him yeah exactly he's he's repping my gay boys so um so those are my real people uh and then we move into fictional people okay this is where it's interesting you've got to balance it um yeah so I I was I was thinking deeply about the interactions of people Mm -hmm. And like who who I would like to meet, um, and who would enjoy the library. That was the other is very because yes. yeah. they lots- have respect for the library. They have to really appreciate this. This is a big deal. There are lots of fictional characters who I I would like to meet uh, theoretically, but uh, then I'm kind of like I don't think we would have that much in common, and um, I don't think they would enjoy a library. And I think they would probably be quite messy and loud and um, extroverted. Um, so yeah, uh, I have chosen Maud Tilly from Fingersmith by Sarah Waters, hey. who not only uh, is a, a queer icon, um, but is a in as for those who read Fingersmith um, is very literary, but also a pornographer. So I feel like uh, she'd be an interesting addition to like the library cataloging. Like you need somebody there who's going to go through things and like. Uh, dig out the porn and make sure it's properly categorized. I would love to know if John D had some of that hidden away. I mean, is a library really a library if it doesn't have historical porn in it? Like, I, don't, friend, think- I don't know if you've ever watched What We Do in the Shadows, if you've ever seen <laughs> but they get access to this vampire library that has its own huge section of banned 
and it is banned Victorian pornography that's accessible only to the vampires. And I agree that all libraries need to have these hidden, dangerous, censored sections. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a library is an archive mm-hmm. of historical work and literature. It needs to have a bit of everything. So Maud is there for that. Beautiful. Um, and she's, you know, queer and wonderful. So we love her. Uh, I am also inviting uh, the the queer character. Well, she might not. She might not be queer, but. I'm hoping. Uh, the character I have the the biggest crush on, okay, probably, uh, who I could stand to be in the same room as, and who's good at libraries, uh, which is Isabeau de Clermont from uh, The Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness. Uh-huh. She is a vampire who has been around since like the fourth century or something, you know? And I just feel like that's very helpful for library cataloging. To, to have somebody who's actually lived through all of the things, because there is this phenomenon with like historical documents uh, where, so for instance, um, there's a, in around kind of like the 14th century, um, there were three containers that used to be on most dinner tables and historical documents tell us they were for salt, uh, salt and pepper, et cetera, right? But nobody knows what the etc. Exactly, <laughs> and because people at the time just took it for granted, yeah, you know what the etc. is, then you don't know. Um, and there's lots of theories about what it could be: sugar, honey, all of these kind of things. But nobody knows. So I think it's very helpful to have a uh, a long-lived vampire who has lived through most of human history to kind of be there. And um, when you come across these things in historical documents that assume that you would know, uh, then you you have somebody to kind of set you rights. Also, I have a crush on her, so. I genuinely don't think, when if you look at vampires who've lived that long, there's always an element of queer in there. You could not have lived for thousands of years. Look at, like Eric Northman in True Blood is the most alpha male, <laughs> super queer. Cause like, you know, you live for that long. Your I think, eyes are, you know, your mind is broadened and widened in so many ways because you've lived yeah. forever. Also, she was around at kind of like, you know, the Greek uh, Hellenistic era. You know, I feel like that's a very queer time. So, Oh, my God. This is what I find. I, I was talking to a friend recently about this. I find it fascinating that, you know, ancient Rome and ancient Greece were incredibly queer as societies. And then Christianity just came along and was like, nope. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, I think the thing that the big change is in governance. So in the sense that like it becomes a top down sort of thing. But like uh, sodomy wasn't outlawed in England until Henry VIII. So there's actually like a really long period of time where like, yes, the church would have said, no, it's yeah. a bad idea, blah, blah, blah. But people were having gay relationships with less of a threat of the law than people oh, necessarily um and yeah it's it's henry the did a couple of these actually so he it's it, it's during his reign that sodomy was outlawed but it's also during his reign that uh it became it was possible to be killed for being a witch for the first time uh it, it, but only if you'd killed somebody with witchcraft oh. um yeah, and then it's that nice caveat. Of, yeah, became the precursor for for the witch trials. Eventually. Oh, Henry, really, 
he really has some answering to do, doesn't he, Henry, for some of his behaviours? Yeah, yeah, he does. He does. I might have to check the check the dates on the witch law. The witch law actually, it might might have snuck into Mary or Elizabeth's reign. I'm not sure, but Henry has a lot to answer for either way. Really, He's definitely- he really does. He is the most misogynistic of kings, I think. Yes, exactly. And look, you're you've got your crush in the room. I think you two will bond a bit over some, you know. Some I definitely hope so. Um, but I have like brought a. Uh, I have decided to bring along a a kind of crush for her as well because Ooh. I feel like it's to do. Um, uh, and this is where we slip into like we've got real characters, fictional characters, and deities. Because- oh, okay. I, I like that. I like to have, you know, yeah. some spirit thrown in there. Uh, so I definitely would like Cersei the Witch from Madeline Miller's yes. Cersei. Uh, who I feel like would be a great match for Isabeau. Uh, that could work out well for them um, and would be cute. Uh, also, you've got to have a witch in the mix. Like, yeah. if you don't, how? what's the point of what's going to... What's the point? To- <laughs> I was say, what's even the point? Yeah. We have an incredible library and... I feel like Cersei would find some stuff in there that she would be able yeah. to unlock something. She's going to read through some of this and see beyond yeah. what's written there. Definitely. And then lastly, I um, I definitely want uh, Aziraphale from uh, Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, who loves the bookshop and loves the library and would love it. But it doesn't feel fair to have Aziraphale without Crowley. So I would definitely also bring Crowley. And they are a queer couple icon, so it's fabulous. Yeah, you're going to see some bickering, some banter going on there. Exactly, exactly. And they've also both seen a lot of history. So uh, Hilary and I and Christopher Marlowe are going to be having so much fun just making up stories off the back of all of their stories. I love this mix. I really love this. This is, trying to picture, also, does the man himself, does John get to see these people in his library or, or maybe not? Nah, I don't yeah. think so. Nah. Um, he's very interesting as a historical character. I, I like to read about him a lot. Um, but everything I've read about him tells me that I would find him insufferable. Yeah. It's kind of like St. Paul the Apostle, you know, you're like, I, I get it, I understand, but I you are the person at a dinner party who I would really not want to sit next to. Um, so yeah. Just lay off uh, the stick for like five minutes, John. Just like <laughs> Just chill for five minutes. You don't need to be on all the time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this is where I usually ask if there's anyone that you don't want to arrive. I mean, apart from poor John. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a hard question. Uh, when, when I read the question, my first thought was like literally anyone from Game of Thrones because they yeah. are so much drama. Um, they, just, they just bring drama wherever they go. They're just um, not good party guests. They're just not. But parties with them are never good. Yeah, I'm just not sure. That's the thing as well. Is you put more than one of them in a room, somebody's getting killed. Exactly. Like they bring death to the party. Mm. Um, and the other one is because it would be far too distracting and I would not get any reading done. I cannot have Aragorn. I He's absolutely understand too- that. It's a shame, but I understand your reasoning too sexy he's just too sexy and also if i had both of my both of my fictional crushes in a room at the same time like i I just want everyone else to leave like i don't i don't need anybody else there it turns in a whole different kind of party doesn't it so 
you know, I need to, I need to keep it even and just be I like, no. I hope in agreement with Phil Maragon that he's at his sex. You know, he opens the doors and he is like bedraggled. And then later on when he's kind of got the weird perm and he's all shiny, less so. Less sexy, but like I, I'm, I, I heard you talking about this, and I disagree. Like I am a book Aragorn person. I'm sorry. I, I oh, just okay. And I think it's like it's for me. It's like when he's like well into ranger mode in the Fellowship of the Ring, and he's like shepherding these hobbits around the wild, and he's defending them from things, and then he's like singing them poetry, and I'm just like, oh, he is both soft and strong. <laughs> like andrex he is <laughs> somewhere i need to now make a meme for this episode that features that that is the best description of aragorn soft yeah. and strong yeah i think was that not the name for andrex was that not the tagline i'm gonna google this now and be like was that what they said i think so i don't remember i think i always thought it was but it means so many things. Look, th- this has been a pleasure of an evening. I have to say it's well curated. It's well thought out. I think your guests would all blend beautifully, actually. A lot yeah. of conversation when when needed and wanted. Mm. And yeah. silence and when it should be. Yes, and I'm basically using it as an opportunity to mine out all of the books I might write for the next 20 years. You know, it's, it's great. The book that would be. And look, before I let you go and enjoy the rest of your Seattle day, I have to ask mm. if you're reading anything at the moment. Yes. Um, so I'm in the middle of writing uh, my second book. So I am, when I'm writing, I tend not to read big novels. What I do is I read short novels and short story collections, a lot of. Um, but I found this in a beautiful bookstore in Seattle called Arundel Books, which is a lovely bookstore, highly recommend. Yeah, I know. Um, Lie With Me by Philippe Besson. Ooh. Which, yeah. So it's a it's a trans it's translated by Mor- Molly Ringwald, uh, which is a great name for a translator, I believe. Um I was gonna say the Molly Ringwald. I said I looked at it and she, I was like, Did she do that as well? <laughs> um, but this is what yeah. we're laughing, but it genuinely is her. And we're like, oh <laughs> Molly yeah, doesn't that do that. Hilarious. Um yeah, so it's a it's a book of it's a a book by a French author about queer love and loss. And it's just, if you like Call Me By Your Name, then it's a must. It's an absolute must of a book. Um, and yeah, I, I really have really, really enjoyed it. And I finished it just last night. So that's that's my reading. And uh, yeah, I'll be investigating more bookshops to look for something else to read. What, what an excuse. That's international <laughs> bookshops. You have to, it's rude not to. I know I'm there going but we've got to buy Christmas presents we've got we've got, we've got to buy Christmas presents that's why we're going to the bookshop mm-hmm. we're going to buy the mm-hmm. see that's that well-worn excuse look thank you <laughs> so so much Emma I wish you all the best with the books fantastic it's gonna do so so well 18th of January it's not far away you've got a little month and a bit at the time of recording so it's on the horizon and it's gonna it do fantastically thank you so so much Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of A Novel Evening. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. Please remember to go over and rate, subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcasts and check us out on Instagram at A Novel Evening Podcast and over on TikTok under the same name and we'll see you next week. Bye bye.